having the opportunity to either comment on a Facebook live stream or on a Twitch stream or join in live on something like a Twitter Spaces or an Instagram Live. Now it's a two-way street, not just information going one way downhill. We journalists have the privilege of getting a front row seat to the news as it happens, but that privilege and access is earned through a lot of hard work, some luck, and being able to adapt to a situation at a moment's notice. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Mike Janella is a multimedia sports host, producer, and writer. In addition to being the game day and digital host for the New York Mets, he's written about freelancing, effective networking, and breaking into sports and entertainment journalism. Mike, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Hey, Michael. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Are you a Mets fan? Should I ask that first? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's one of those rare jobs in sports where you get to work for the team that you're actually a fan of. So uh, I, oh. I lucked out. I've been a fan since before I was born. My dad used to read me the box scores when I was in my mom's belly. So yeah, it's been really cool to be able to say I'm a Met now. Okay. All right. A Metropolitan. All right. Exactly. Well, okay, cool. Anyway, <laughs> so that's the first thing first. Tell me about you know your history. How'd you get into journalism? What first drew you to this? Actually, the whole growing up a, a baseball and a sports fan kind of ties directly into how I ended up doing this for a living because like a lot of young kids, my initial dream was to grow up and be a ball player. I wanted to you know, play second base or center field for the Mets. And then pretty early on, around seven, eight years old, I realized in Little League that was not going to happen. I was too slow. I was too short. I was too uncoordinated, too unathletic. It just wasn't happening. But I still loved sports so much, and I remember... Watching a game, I don't remember which broadcaster it was, maybe Al Michaels or Bob Costas, Chris Berman, somebody like, you know, early, mid-90s. It was some game, I think it was Cal Ripken breaking the Lou Gehrig games played streak record, and that broadcaster said something like, I can't believe I'm getting paid to be here, and I have the best seat in the house. And seven or eight or nine-year-old me, whoever it was, was like, wow, that's not a bad point this guy made. Maybe... If I can't play baseball professionally, I can learn how to be one of these broadcasters, and then I'll get to go to every game for free. And that just ended up being sort of my, my guiding light. And then from there, I ended up taking all the steps that I needed to, you know, joining the class newspaper in middle school and taking TV class in high school and then deciding to go major in broadcast journalism in college and taking internships and jobs along the way. So, yeah, it all came from sucking at Little League Baseball, basically, is what got me into this line of work. And then from there, you just get all these unique and interesting jobs and opportunities that have made this pretty fun career for me. So, you know, what's a typical game day for you? You know, when does it start? What do you need to do? Who do you need to talk to? So on the Mets job, yeah, it's uh, pretty much, you know, non-existent from October to March when baseball is not happening. And then it goes into overdrive through the summer. So a typical game day is arriving to the park about two hours before first pitch, going over with my director and my producer for the day what the plan is. We have a pretty set in-game plan every night, the same activities for fans, the same pregame show schedule, but just going over maybe what we're going to talk about in that pregame show. It's kind of a 20-minute sports center type preview of the game. So what are the segments for that going to be? Are we doing any unique interviews or contests or anything like that? And we prepare that. Those two hours beforehand are, are getting ready for that, writing those scripts, researching whatever stats I need to feel comfortable for what I'm saying on camera. And then once the game starts, then it's kind of plug and play. Every night is essentially the same. We have different contests with fans. It's just a matter of finding 
finding a lucky fan, getting to talk with them a bit, and then you know asking them trivia or having them hit a wiffle ball home run derby or things like that. And then that just kind of goes every night. The cool thing that I like about the job is they've afforded me to do a lot more outside of that. So in the past, we've hosted shows on X slash Twitter on Spaces after a Mets win. I'll host it on the official team channel. Fans will call in, talk about what they liked or didn't like about the game or the team or, or whatever. Kind of, you know, talk radio, just taken to the social media age. Or there's a lot of pregame stuff we do before every series. I'll go watch batting practice. We'll grab one of the Mets players after his session, ask him to preview the series for us, ask a few questions. And then a bunch of other things for the team's digital and social media channels. If a former player's in town, we'll grab him for an interview. If a celebrity's in town throwing out the first pitch, we'll grab them for an interview. And just kind of all that. So a typical day is all that we know is that stuff on the game, but then an atypical day could be doing all of those things at once. And I'm there, you know, for 11, 12 hours by the time I get there to the time I head home. Do you travel with the team? That I do not do. My main responsibilities are just when they're home, game day, and then all those other things that I mentioned uh, are usually done still here. We don't need the team or me to be with the team for all of those. So short answer, no. They hit the road and I, I stay around home. You know, are you doing social media? Are you hosting, you know, fan stuff during the off season, Or does it sort of ramp up in the spring and go through the season and then come playoffs? Yeah, we'll, we'll say playoffs. Hopefully, with yeah. Let's with the Mets. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> it's definitely a seasonal ramp up. We had done some stuff in the offseason, especially during the COVID years where there wasn't much going on at all. We attempted to do a lot to provide fans with content. So we would interview former players at their homes over Zoom or prospects or draft picks, anything to provide the fans with something. Before COVID, we used to do in the offseason live events. So fans would come to, you know, fan fest type things and meet former players. And it's kind of like a, a Mets convention. And we would do things like that. That's slowed down a bit now. I think what uh, the team is trying to do a lot is, is player generated content. So, you know, have a player film his workout and send that in or things like that for the offseason. So as of right now, strategy looks like, yeah, mostly ramp up in season. But we have done offseason stuff in the past. This year, not so much. So sports is well known for, you know, it has a history in talk radio of, you know, having a real rapport between the reporters, the players and the public, you know, you know fans, you know, podcasts or their fan radio shows and, and websites, you know, how do you engage? What do you think is the best way or what have you seen as, as the most successful way to sort of engage with, with the audience? I think it's done a complete 180 from when, say, Mike and the Mad Dog were doing this in the 80s or ESPN first came out in, in 1979, where it used to be, I think this is fair for any kind of news or any kind of content, it used to be the consumer would just consume, right? Walter Cronkite would give you the news and who could dare do it better than him? But now it's done a complete 180 where the fans want to be involved, because they think their opinions are just as valid as the person on screen or behind the microphone. Sometimes they're right, sometimes maybe not so much, but regardless, it's their right to be able to, to speak that way, especially nowadays when anybody can start a podcast or a TikTok or a, a live stream or a Twitch or whatever. So I think what has ended up shifting, even in the 20 years I've been doing this, is that now you have to involve the fan to really engage with them. I think for the best engagement, there's still the opportunity where you know, if I, as the host, have access to something the typical fan does not, I can take you to a part of the stadium that 
the public doesn't have access to. Or I can get an exclusive sit-down interview with a member of a team's front office or a celebrity that is not doing interviews for everybody. That still has that benefit of, okay, I'm tuning into Mike because Mike's giving me access to something I don't have on my own. But if someone's just watching Mike for his opinions, well, people have opinions too. So having the opportunity to either you know, comment on a Facebook live stream or on a Twitch stream or join in live on something like Twitter Spaces or an Instagram Live, I think to really connect with people, you have to have that element to it where now it's a two-way street, not just information going one way downhill. At what point did you realize that you needed to sort of shift what you, you had been doing before? I'd say the first job I had that really highlighted that was back in 2016, so almost 10 years ago now. So it's been a little while, but I hosted a show for the San Diego Padres, also Major League Baseball, for the now defunct uh, Fox Sports San Diego. And it was called Padres Social Hour. And every show was live, but we were taking tweets throughout the show that we were integrating into the show. So we had our hashtag and whatever we were talking about, people would be able to give their opinions and we'd put the tweets up on screen. And and some of the most popular segments we did were the ones that were driven by, hey, send us what you think about this, or we're debating this, tell us your thoughts. And that would get way more pop than us breaking down last night's game, the X's and O's, or talking about strategies or things like that. So that was really the first time that I really saw, okay, this is what we're going to have to do, we being you know, the industry at large, moving forward. And there were some small seeds before that. I used to do a lot of play-by-play in sports, and I would you know, ask a trivia question in the first quarter or in the third inning, and uh, hey, fans, email me before you know, social media was a big thing. Email me the answer, and, and the winner will win... I don't know, a $10 popcorn voucher at the next game or something. And people would start emailing in and I would say, okay, so people are actually listening and they're actually wanting to get involved. So there were little things like that. But then once I started having the opportunity to have people involved in the shows that I was hosting directly and seeing how popular those were, at that point, you know, the floodgates open and there's no coming back. That horse is out of the barn. So obviously you're comfortable on the mic. You think on your feet. Was that a skill that you sort of developed early on or is that just something you just had to learn as you moved forward? I think that skill, a lot of it can't necessarily be taught. It's something that, you know, when I think about my upbringing, I come from a huge family, you know, 35 people around the Thanksgiving table, 40 people at Christmas. And if you, (laughs) yeah, that's right. If you want to get a word in edgewise, sometimes you've got to be quick. You have to learn how to be faster or quippier or wittier than your cousin or your brother or whoever. Otherwise, you're never going to have your voice heard at all. So I think that was something for me as I look back on my upbringing that really helped me get that sort of uh, skill honed. You can take improv classes. You can do you know, stand-up comedy boot camps, and I think that stuff helps. I've never done it. But when I think about the training, quote unquote, that I had just by growing up in in the circumstances that I did, I think that kind of was my boot camp in terms of being able to think quickly and be on your feet. And then all the other standard stuff, I would always, I would read a lot as a kid. I was never really outside. I was never, you know, breaking bones or climbing trees. I was reading encyclopedias like when I was a kid. So just having all that extra preparation and, and frame of reference of the world helps you be quicker and able to be quick on your feet when you need to be. How important is preparation for doing a game day coverage? Incredibly important. And 
I train and I coach a lot of up-and-coming talent too, and it's a contradictory and a weird thing because you don't want to sound over-prepared or robotic in this, but you also need to be over-prepared. And what I try to tell people is that it's a needle you have to thread. The reason that I prepare so much is so that I don't have to be so rigid and robotic and I can be freer. It's almost a freedom by discipline. Because when I talk to someone, if I'm interviewing somebody, and if I know every single thing there is to know about them, then if they answer a question in a way that I'm not expecting and throw me a curveball, I can be nimble and I can be agile and ask a question I wasn't planning on asking because I know so much about them and I'm so comfortable and in command of the subject matter that I can you know, go in a different direction. It's like if you talk to someone who is an expert in, I don't know, U.S. financial history, right? If you can talk to someone that maybe researches that for a little bit, but if you talk to someone that does that for a living and has studied that throughout their entire lives, and they can talk to you about everything from Alexander Hamilton to, you know, the treasury bonds today, like they will be able to just have a conversation with you. And that's what it's going to be, a conversation, not a dissertation. One of my big things I tell people is when they're doing interviews, conversations, not interrogations, right? And so when you don't prepare, it can very easily come across as, oh, here are the 10 questions that I thought of, and I'm going to ask them to you, and that's all we're going to do. But if you do prepare, then you can have a conversation where you can just talk to somebody or just talk about something without having to feel like you're ticking off boxes or going through a checklist. And so I prepare a ton my dream is that I, I prepare, let's say, 100% of, of knowledge to only use 10% of it. Because I don't want to have to use everything, but I want that opportunity to be able to take something wherever I need to take it. Yeah, that that fact or that angle to a particular story is there for you to grab and apply when it's most appropriate. Athletes, professional athletes, quite often if you watch a lot of them, a lot of what they're saying, the way they, you know, the message they're putting out there is, often seems some to me sometimes very canned that they've been trained or handled or they understand that you should answer like this to this type of question. I mean, is that something that's that can be challenging? Is is that something that you just sort of work with or, or try to get somebody out of that, you know, mode? It's probably one of the toughest parts of being a sports journalist or reporter is that you have your job to do, but so do the players, right? And their job is to not say anything inflammatory or controversial or that might get them in trouble. So it is a bit of a cat and mouse game, but I actually enjoy that challenge because for me, I have a couple plans of attack for that. Number one is trying to ask more interesting questions because if if you're getting a canned answer, it's probably because they've heard that question or some variety of that question before, and they've been able to think about that answer. They've been able to prepare for it. If you give them something that they can't prepare for, how are they going to have a canned answer, right? So my goal whenever I interview someone is, can I ask them questions they've never been asked before? And obviously, you have some duty to the consumer that you have to ask some of those questions they've been asked before because you just have to cover your bases in terms of what the purpose of an interview is. But I always try and, and think of unique questions that are going to get unique answers, and that will help you a little bit in that regard. But then what I also like to do is needle people a bit. If someone gives you what sounds like a very scripted PR spin answer – throw it back at them. Like, oh, well, very political answer. How early before this interview did you think about that one? Just kind of like throw them a little something. And sometimes their reaction to that sort of retort can be enough in its own right to now be good content, right? They give you that wry smile or they give you that wink or they say, oh, well, you know, I can't say anything more about that. Then that becomes 
the story, right? And then you've done your job because you've gotten something out of them that they weren't trying to give you. So it's those kind of two things. Ask unique questions that are going to get unique answers. And then uh, number two, don't be afraid. Again, it's a conversation. Don't be afraid to jab with them a bit or joke with them a bit and try and push your luck a little bit. So like you, there are many people that when they were younger, they decided that they wanted to be a, become a sports journalist and they sort of pursued that. But you've also done entertainment writing. You worked, uh, was it for The Hollywood Reporter, Billboard, yep. and the Guinness World of Record, World Records? What did you do with yeah. the Guinness World Records? I mean, that was one of the most unique jobs I'll ever have. Maybe one of the, mo the most fun job I'll ever had. Yeah, I was there for five years or so. I, I started as a records judge. So every sports record in the world, basically, if you tried to break it, I would be the one judging it. You know, you'd send me videos or I'd go travel the world to watch people <laughs> uh, attempt things. As a person in their mid to late 20s, just flying literally around the world to see the craziest things and be at the craziest places and meet the craziest people. I, I loved it. But then from there, you know, there was a ton of content that was there for the taking. So we started hosting YouTube shows. Here are the records of the month or interviewing record holders. You know, how do you get to grow the longest nails, you know, ever? So things like that. So where do you get um, gloves? I mean, exactly. Yeah. How do you type on a, how do you type on your iPhone? How do you get gloves? Who knows? A lot of questions to ask. You poke yourself in the eye when you're right. A hundred percent. All the things you don't, they don't teach you in journalism school. So yeah, I mean, to me, I have a lot of interests. Sports is primary among them, but I also love movies. I've loved TV. I love travel and food and, and lifestyle. So as the industry has sort of changed to be very freelance oriented, you can't just say, oh, I'm only going to work I don't know, hockey or I'm only going to work food. Like what if there's no hockey or food jobs? You're going to have to take a job covering basketball or covering the home renovation. So I've over the years, some of it by choice, some of it by necessity, taken a lot of different jobs. I used to host a, a wild animal show. I never thought that I'd be holding a sloth or a baby cheetah while talking to a zoologist about these things, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do to pay the bills. In the end, the common thread is just what's entertaining and what can I learn myself and teach my viewers, whether it's something you know, serious or educational or something a little bit more lighthearted, but how can someone come away having enjoyed the previous five or 10 minutes with me more than they were before that? And whether the subject matter is sports or entertainment or something else, I think that's a through line through anything. How conscious are you of your role in the interview? I mean, you know, sometimes you'll tell a journalist who's writing a story, you know, we don't want to hear your voice or go interview this person, ask a few questions, but don't make the thing about you. But in video, you know, especially if it's a live thing, you're there as part of that. How do you sort of manage that? In your head, what are you thinking about? Are you just thinking about, I need to get this information so I can go to the next thing? Or how can you stay in the moment and continue to move forward? If you understand what I mean. Oh, no, definitely. Because there are definitely those journalists or content creators that want to make it about them. And they'll have an interview subject and they'll ask them a question and the person will answer for 15 seconds. Then the host will have a two-minute retort. And it's like, wait, who's doing the interview here? So for me, but at the same time, anyone that's on camera for a living is a little bit of a ham and a little bit, you know, wanting the spotlight. Anyone who tells you otherwise, I think, is, is a liar. Finally, um, somebody admits. But yeah, yeah, no, 100%. If, if you didn't want that, you'd be a newspaper writer, right? Or, or you'd write books. But, you know, we all like hearing our own voices. We all like seeing ourselves. And so there is a part of that that you do want to scratch that itch. So I totally get it. But you don't want that to overpower it. Again, you want to remember that, especially when you're 
dealing with someone else, a guest or an interview, you are not the star of the show. Sometimes you are. If you're hosting a show where it's you and your buddy or another player, but it's designed to be a back and forth. We see this so much in sports first take or around the horn or PTI, then sure, make it all about you because it is all about you. But yeah, when I work with other people where I'm the interviewer, they're the interviewee, I constantly, you know, I ask questions and then I get out of the way. Their answer should be the spotlight. I had a bad habit when I was younger with interviews of jumping in in the middle of answers, cutting people off just to you know, kind of prove, oh yeah, I'm listening. Like, let me laugh at that thing or let me whatever. But then you go back and you watch it. And it's like, oh, that's annoying because I'm trying to listen to this, this person answer a question and all you're doing is jumping in and, and making it choppy. So I've learned to, you know, be an active listener. So when someone's answering my question, be present, like you said, be in the moment to know what they're saying. Then I get to show off because if they say something unique or interesting and I take the conversation in a different direction than was expected, that's how I get to show that you know, I'm there and I'm involved because that's what I do. I'm steering the ship. And depending where the ship goes, that's where, where I can come in. Or cracking a joke about what they just said, you know, acknowledging something they just said. The fact that you can prove, okay, I'm listening and responding and not just asking my next question and having a ping pong match back and forth, I think that's how you prove as an interviewer that you're involved. And hey, don't forget about me. I'm still here because otherwise... You don't want to overtake it, but there's a reason that you're there too. Otherwise, the person would just have the questions on an index card and answer them right from there. So what as a host can you bring that an index card cannot bring? That's kind of my guiding rule for stuff like that. Some people do take that spotlight and hog it a little bit too much, but I always like to try and tell myself and remind myself, you're not the star of this thing. You're the seasoning. So, you know, be paprika, but don't be, don't be the steak. Okay. That's a, that's a great way to put it. All right. So you working with the Mets is a seasonal thing. What do you do with the rest of your time? Whatever I can do. Today was uh, changing my thermostat wires on my old uh, furnace downstairs. So uh, that doesn't pay the bills though, but it does keep me occupied. No, uh, when you freelance, you just take a, a bunch of different gigs. Luckily, the last few years in the off season here in New York, there's MSG Networks, which has the rights to every New York sports team except for the Mets and the Yankees, essentially, with the Knicks, the Rangers, all the hockey teams air their games there. So I've been able to do a lot of correspondent work for them. They've gotten a lot into the sports betting space and content there the last couple of years. So I'll go and co-host some football shows talking about the NFL lines for that weekend or prop bets you can get on the Knicks game that night and breaking that down and stuff like that. So uh, do that sports side. I also host a show, again, talking about things that maybe don't seem connected for the American Kennel Club. So uh, every week they have a show that syndicates out to over 150 markets TV across the country. And I host some segments there talking about what's happening in dog news that week. Again, not something that I thought I would ever do. I love dogs. Didn't think I'd, I'd get to learn this much about them, but it's a really cool content space and a really appreciative fan base that loves that kind of stuff. So yeah, pick up things like that. And then random things that come along, emceeing award shows, doing corporate events, anything that needs someone on a microphone or in front of a camera. There's a lot of people out there that are terrified of public speaking and are happy to hire someone to do it for them. So picking up things like that throughout the year. And then you end up making a pretty good living out of, you know, cobbling six or seven different things together over the course of the calendar. So you know, at what point did you realize, I have these other marketable skills? I know how to speak in public. I know how to interview people. I'm comfortable on camera. 
if you set yourself up is I want to be a sports broadcaster and you realize, well, that's something that's not going to pay all my bills. You know, did you at some point realize, hey, how can I use these skills elsewhere to create more work for myself? It becomes a bit of a necessity. It did for me at least, but now I think it's a necessity in a different way. It became a necessity for me because coming right out of college, my first jobs were seasonal. So I never had a nine to five salary job for the first six, seven years of my career. So once baseball season was over, I had to figure out what else to do. And then as other jobs came up, it was just a matter of, I can do that and doing it. And luckily when you're getting started, a lot of these are low stakes and places that will take a chance on you because there's no one else that'll do it for you know $5 an hour or whatever. So it becomes a bit of a necessity in that regard. But now I think it's a necessity in terms of you have to have all these multi skills because that's what makes you an attractive person for any opportunity. The example I always think of is I, I wrote for my student paper in college all four years at the time, in you know the early 2000s, all that that was was writing. You would go to the game or you'd go to practice, you'd do the interview, you'd come back to the office, you'd write the story, it would be in the paper printed the next day. And it would be online printed that night. But now, if you go to that same website, you know, Daily Orange, best student paper in the country, I have to shout them out up at Syracuse, uh, they have their reporters not only writing the game stories, but doing podcasts, interviewing players after the game to put on video, doing audio exclusives. It's all stuff you have to do now because when you get to ESPN, they're going to ask you to do the same thing. So it's a necessity now because everybody wants content a million different ways and you have to know how to do it. Yeah. It's where the media is at the moment. And who knows where it'll be in five years or 10 years. It may all change. So what advice would you give to somebody who, like you started out, you know, dreaming of become a sports reporter or an entertainment reporter? You know, what would you tell them? What's the best path or what, what should they concentrate on? I mean, concentrate on just doing it. That's kind of the one thing that I, I really tell people. Everyone's, a lot of people come to me, oh, I, I want to talk about movies, but no one wants to hire me because I have no experience. Well, the great thing about being alive today is that you can make your own experience. Start a podcast, start a, a YouTube series, start a Twitch, and give yourself that experience. It's not going to pay you any money, but if you have the ability to do that on the side or as a hobby until you can make that a full-time thing, that's what I would do. When I was in college, it's very competitive up at Syracuse because we have, we believe, the best you know, broadcasting school in the country, sports in particular. When there's only you know, two student radio stations, but there are 200 people that want to call Syracuse basketball games on that station, guess what? You're not going to get those opportunities until maybe your last semester on campus. So what did I do? I, I went up and sat in the Carrier Dome in the last row, brought my spot charts that I made, and just recorded play-by-play -play into a tape recorder just to get that experience. And I would do that you know, for multiple games to be able to at least practice. And then I would, even if the radio station wouldn't let me on, the radio station sports director would at least listen to my tapes and give me feedback. And then I'm still learning, I'm still doing, right? And then that person knows, okay, Mike's putting in the work, Mike's getting better. And then when that opportunity does come, you're ready to go. I tell this story all the time. I mentioned before that show that I used to host for the San Diego Padres, that was an hour-long talk show, seven days a week, you know, interview-based. Think of the, the Tonight Show. I was the Jimmy Fallon, and we would have rotating co-hosts and guests every day. And the reason they hired me, they told me after the fact, was because I had a podcast that I had started that was about an hour long, interviewing someone different every week in the sports world, and they loved how entertaining and uh, engaging 
that was, and they figured, oh, if he can do that on his own, he can do it with us, with a director and with producers and with you know all, bookers and all this stuff. I started that podcast just to practice. I'm like, let me get a podcast going because I want to practice interviewing. I want to network. I want to be able to invite people and have something to talk about. And that episode, there was one episode in particular they said they listened to that swung them on hiring me. That episode got seven listeners. One of those was probably my mom. Two or three were me just replaying it. And then all it took was their one listen. So I think a lot of people want to create content with the idea that I'm going to be the next TikTok star and my TikToks are going to make me rich or my podcast is going to blow up. Not necessarily. So my biggest advice is do the thing to get the practice, not necessarily for that to succeed because you want that to be a proof of concept of what you can do so that eventually someone will pay you money to do what you want to do. So those are my two big things is create that content and then remember that that content is something you're going to use to try and influence other people to hire you once you get your networking down. Don't necessarily expect the thing you're doing as practice to be the thing that blows up for you. Well, before we wrap up, you've mentioned a number of the different places that you've worked and the types of stories that you've done. What was the craziest story that you ever did? In terms of something like what I covered or something that happened to yeah, me? Yeah, something how, that how you, in your entire life, you never, well, you mentioned the sloth, but is it in your entire <laughs> life, you know, I can't believe I'm doing this. Or is that just every day because you're a Mets fan? It's every day because I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of cool things. So, I mean, with the Mets, yeah, the list is endless. I grew up obviously admiring Daryl Strawberry and Doc Gooden and Mike Piazza and David Wright. So like last year, the Mets have their Hall of Fame induction ceremony and all these guys get to come back and they ask me to host the, the sort of pregame show, pre-ceremony show, where I'm sitting down with David Wright, or I get 20 minutes with Mike Piazza, and I'm thinking in my head, while I'm trying to be a cool, calm, collected journalist on the outside, I'm thinking in my head, man, when I was 13, I had this guy's poster on my wall. Like, how cool is that? So with the Mets, that really happens pretty often, and it's, it's easy to get jaded because I get to go out on that field Every single day, the same field that as a kid, I wanted nothing more than to be out there on that grass professionally, and I get to do that. So it's, it's a pinch me moment pretty often. But then I think about the people I've gotten to talk with. I mean, I've gotten to work with LeBron James. I got to interview Alex Trebek. I've watched Jeopardy every night since I was a baby. And to be able to, with the late great Alex, go meet him and interview him and be the one asking him questions. He asks people questions. That's his job. Like, I got, like, all that kind of cool stuff. So things like that are the places I've been. You know, work has taken me to Tokyo and Brazil and London and, you know, all over the place. So just, I'll write a book someday. Uh, hopefully someone will read the memoir. But I've been very lucky enough to experience a lot of these different things that I could have only dreamed of when, when I got started. Mike, thanks for sharing these stories. Hopefully it gives some people some motivation to sort of take the reins of what they're doing and sort of guide their future, because I think that's probably has a lot to do with your success. It really does. And it's a thing that if you, if you really, truly want it, you really, truly, like 100% have to believe in yourself to do it. Because I got started, obviously, coming out of a very competitive school program. And almost every one of my peers has gone on to something else. They've decided, I just I don't want to put in the time or the effort. Or sometimes you can't. This is, in many times, I've gone months, sometimes a year, without any paying jobs. And for a lot of people, that's not doable. Thankfully, you know, with savings and, and unemployment and getting by, but... Some people have kids to feed. Some people have mortgages to pay. And pursuing this career just isn't feasible. But if it is for you, 
Like my parents even at some times when I was in down times, Mike, are you sure you don't want to become like a speechwriter or get into PR or, or get into marketing? And I would say no, because I had this deep down in my gut belief that this is what I want to do and this is what I'm good at and I can succeed at this. And you got to be really honest at yourself with yourself. But if you truly think that you're good at this and you love it and you can make a successful career out of this, don't let anybody push you off the path. Because once you start thinking about it, it's like a Formula One race car driver. If you start thinking about crashing, you're going to crash. So the second you start thinking, maybe this isn't for me, you're going to make that a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's corny, but believe in yourself. Okay. Well, I think it's a great place to leave it. Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, Michael, my pleasure. Absolutely. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Bolevsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.